Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the kids pastor here, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. I'm typically over in the other building, and uh, if you hear any loud noises that sound like it's beyond the like section right here, then it's probably us. Uh, Jerry's leading worship over there for us this morning. We have an all-star cast with your kids, and I'm uh, excited about what God's going to do in that place this morning. I know that God has not called me to be a worship leader uh, because I almost never make it through a song set without crying, and so uh, God's called me to preach, and I can do that without crying most of the time, and uh, if I start, then just somebody bring me a box of tissues. Join me in Psalm 127 this morning, 127, and the title of my message is The Fundamentals. It's The Fundamentals. Do we have any baseball fans here this morning? Any baseball fans? Ten of you. All right, cool. Do we have any golf fans, Masters people? Eight of you. All right, so I lost the rest of you. All right, I'm going to try to try to break this down. Um, when I was a kid, one of my favorite players was a guy named Ryan Sandberg, R-Y-N-E, not like my Ryan, R-Y-A-N, but R-Y-N-E. He was the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs, and he started out with the Phillies, and through a deal, he got sent to the Cubs, and he basically made his living on the fundamentals of baseball, and he ended up one of the best second basemen to ever play the game. If you've kept up with baseball, I think he started in 82, and uh, he's a phenomenal player. Well, now he is managing the Phillies, and in managing the Philadelphia Phillies, he has the task of taking over one of the best teams for the last probably five or six years in Major League Baseball. And so what's he doing? Instead of doing all the, uh, the, you know, the kind of top shelf things, he's gone back to the fundamentals, the stuff that we teach kids when they're 5 and 8 and 10 years old how to play the game. So he had his staff come up, come up with some blue spray paint, and they sprayed the corners of the inside of the bag on first base, second base, third base. That way when, they're, when the players, these are guys who make all-star teams. These are people that you watch on TV. So when they're rounding the bases, they step on the inside corner and they cut down on that millisecond that might be the difference between out and safe. He's teaching them to hit the right cutoff, man. These are things, these are the basics, the fundamentals. But mastering the fundamentals is what took Sandberg to the Hall of Fame, to the top of the game. So this morning, we're going to go to Psalm 127, and we're going back to the fundamentals of life. And we're going to see how in the fundamentals, in three key areas, we need to learn, need to, learn to depend on the Lord. And see, a lot of us, we get away from this. We, we think, we kind of grow up and we get sophisticated and we think, well, I don't need God anymore because I'm out of Sunday school and, you know, and, uh, and I'm okay on my own. So we're going to look at three key areas. You're going to see areas of home. We could say security or work. And we'll say family. Home, security, and family. We're going to look at how in those three areas, God wants us to lean back into him uh, probably more than we are honestly currently doing. You'll see at the top of Psalm 127, we don't have it on the screen here, but in your copy of scripture, it should say a song of what? A song of ascents. A song of ascents basically means this. Um, Several times throughout the calendar year, the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims that lived outside Jerusalem would march up to Jerusalem for worship. And and in doing this, they had to ascend a hill. They had to physically climb a hill. And so there were songs that they sung on their way to worship that would kind of encourage their hearts, uh, would kind of cause them to, uh, to kind of ascend in their hearts as they physically were ascending to their place of worship in the temple. And so Solomon has written Psalm 127, a song of ascent. The word psalm actually means song. And so when you're reading the book of Psalms, you're reading songs. Like if back in the day, I don't know if anybody remembers this, 
But uh, if you used to open a CD case, and if you couldn't figure out what your favorite artist was saying, you'd like pull the, the CD slip out, and you'd fold it out like eight times, you know, and you're reading like lyrics, you know. Is it, did anybody remember that? Okay, all right, cool, all right, good. MP3s have kind of stolen some of the, anyway, that's another day. Um, so this is a song of ascent, Psalm 127, and Solomon is writing it. And Solomon is trying to cause us to get back to the basics, but sadly, much of his wisdom was lost on him. So as smart as he was, as wise as he was, his building efforts were reckless. His kingdom became a ruin, and the marriages and the relationships with the concubines and all the women that Solomon had were a disastrous denial of the God that he had come to know, that he had worshipped, that was uh, his dad, David, had worshipped. And so if you listen to Alistair Begg on the radio at 930, it's, I know it's kind of late, but if you listen to Alistair Begg on the radio or you download his podcast, he says, where the learning is for Living, all right. There's six big fans, cool. All right, so we have where the learning is for living. What that means is when we learn here, it's got to stick. We've got to make it apply, okay? So we've got to take what we're going to learn today from Psalm 127, and we've got to cut and paste it into our life somewhere, some way. And so let me pray briefly for God to do that for us this morning. Father, we come to you this morning, and we desperately need you. We need you to take your word through your spirit and apply it to our hearts, God. We need you to sprinkle it wherever it needs to be and knead it into our hearts, Lord, that it would instruct us and teach us. We ask you to open our hearts, to open our minds, to open our eyes, to see your word and your truth the way that you, you wrote it down. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Psalm 127, just a shock for you, is not about kids. All right, Psalm 127 is not about kids, it's not about family. In fact, it's not at all about building, it's not about security or watchmen or whatever. Uh, we kind of, kids have kind of hijacked Psalm 127 and we've taken Psalm 127.3 because that's the fun verse and we've, you know, put it on coffee cups, it's on bookmarks, it's painted on walls and everything like that. Uh, we've kind of hijacked it. It's on grandma's afghan that she made for you. It's hanging on the back of your rocker and you lay it across you on your Sunday afternoon. Now, Psalm 127 is not about kids. In fact, it's about learning to depend completely on God, okay? So the fundamental area of life that we have got to get if we're going to walk with the Lord is dependence, We've got to learn to depend on the Lord in the fundamental base areas, the building blocks of life, because only what is from God is truly strong. Only what is from the hand of the Lord is worthwhile and worth spending our time and our energy and investing this one trip around this globe that we have in. And so let me share a quote with you from uh, Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It says this, Genesis 1 confronts us with the fact that our need for help preceded sin. So our need for God's help came before sin wrecked and ravaged everything in our world. We were created to be what? Dependent. We were created to be dependent. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Since Genesis 3, since the fall, we've been shaking our fists in God's face and saying, we don't need you. We are okay on our own. We're independent, God. We got this thing. You just step back and let us do our deal. Right? That's, what we, that's how we live much of the time. Tripp says this, trying to live without God's help is to assign myself to a subhuman existence. It's like trying to live like an animal as if I were something other than what I am. Vast numbers of people attempt to live this way, 
but it is an act of irrationality. They deny their identity, they subvert their lives, and they crush their own hope. So one thing we know, or one thing we need to know, if we're going to do this life right, if we're going to do this thing God's way, is that we need the Lord. Anybody else this morning know that? That you need the Lord? You need Him. I need Him. Not every hour. They could have said every second. We need God. In fact, let's, let's do a little test here. Anybody breathing? Raise your hand if you're breathing. Good, then you need God. All right, that's settled. Verse 1. Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman does what? Stays awake in vain. Two very difficult tasks. Now, I can do neither of, all right? I can't build and I can't stay awake. Ask my wife. I will fall asleep like that. If I sat down on the stool and closed my eyes in front of all of you, I just about guarantee you, if you were quiet enough, I'd be asleep in about three or four minutes. No joke. It's crazy. God has blessed me with a gift, all right? I love it. I love to sleep. I love, 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 love to sleep. Um, But the scripture gives us two things, building and staying awake, all right? Uh, If you work third shift and you know what it is like to stay awake when everybody else is sleeping, it's tough. If you build or you do anything like that with your hands, you know both of these labors are difficult. And verse 1 begins with an if-then statement. Unless the Lord builds the house, then what? The laborers do their work, all this difficult labor, it's in vain. It doesn't matter. The words in vain are not the same words from Ecclesiastes, although it's no less sweeping. In vain literally means this, empty, worthless, or wasted. Empty, worthless, or wasted. So what Solomon is saying is if God's not doing the job, if God's not leading the charge, if God's not out in front, then guess what? The best of your time, the best of your energy, the best of your effort, it's empty. It's a cup without a bottom, and you're pouring everything into it that you've got, and it's just running out the bottom. If you've ever engaged in any kind of pursuit like this, and you know what it's like to pour everything into your, what you're doing, and you find that it's empty, it is crushing. It's defeating. Let me, let's put it in modern day terms uh, quickly. When a contractor comes to your house to do some work, all right, so somebody shows up, what's one of the first things they do before they get started on the job? They get their sign out of the back, the little metal frame sign, all right, and it has the little rail right there, and they go to the front yard, and they step on the sign, and they put it in the front yard so that everybody who rides by knows what? They know who did the job, right? And so what Solomon is saying is this. If God's name is not on the sign in whatever endeavor you're doing, then guess what? It's worthless. It's empty. It's wasted. And see, here's what we do. Like I mentioned earlier, we grow up, we become educated, we have uh, awards and plaques and things hanging on our wall where people say we've accomplished things, you know, basically we went to class and we turned in papers and we got a grade and whatever, we went home. Um, we, we, you know, get pats on the back and people tell us how wonderful we are. We become, you know, all, all important and we're accomplished and, and we've done all these things. And then we kind of take the plans from God and we jerk the plans out of his hands and we stretch them out and look at them all of our lives in whatever we're doing, whether it's home, building a home, whether it is watching over what we've built or whether it's our family. And we tell God, God, I know you're the general contractor, but we're going to switch places for the next 50 years or next 30 years or what, next week or whatever the case is. And God, I'm going to be the general contractor. And God, you're going to be the laborer. See, we forget who's slapping the paint on the wall. We forget who puts the handrail up. We forget who's got the plans in hand and is saying, no, 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 no. I'm in charge of this whole deal. 
And so I'm going to say to you this morning, I don't know what your situation is, but if God's sign is not in the front yard of whatever you're doing, and if God's sign is not in the front yard of this building that we're building out here, then listen, it's empty. It's worthless. Let's just not do it. Let's not raise money. Let's not give. If God's sign's not going to be in the front yard, let's hang it up and go home. Anybody else? Let's do that. How does that sit with you? Listen, there's two options. We do this the Lord's way, or you do your life the Lord's way, or just don't do it. Because it's going to be empty and worthless and wasted, and you're going to get to the end, and you're going to lay on the deathbed, and you're going to go, man, what have I done all this time? I've given the best of what I had, the best of what I owned, the best of who I was to something, and it was a bottomless pit. The Apostle Paul found this to be true in Philippians 3. Watch this. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here's what Paul does. He takes all of his trophies, everything he had ever accomplished in his life, this huge trophy shelf. He scoops it all up in his arms. He goes over to the dung pile because literally that's what he's saying. And he tosses all of his trophies over on the poop pile. All right? Everything he's ever accomplished, he just pitches over into the refuse, into the trash. Because he says that's where it belongs compared to knowing this Jesus who loved me and died for me and was resurrected to give me new life and new hope. Christ in me, the hope of glory. But yet we are tempted to spend the best of our lives. And you guys down here, listen to me, please listen. Don't spend the rest and the best of your years and the best of your time on something that's not God's. Don't. But we're tempted to cave into the temptation to do it, right? And God says it's empty. Verse 2, did God say that we couldn't actually accomplish anything? Did he say that you're going to do this and you're not going to see any fruit or or anything from it? Verse 2, interesting phrase Solomon chooses here. He says, eating the bread of anxious toil. So he says, there's actually something to show for your work. You've got this bread, right? But it's going to be bread of painful labor, bread of anxious toil, and you're going to eat it all the days of your life. goes back to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Genesis 3 records the fall of man into sin, all right? And what happens? This is the point when Eve and Adam look at, I say that in that order because that's the way it happened. They look at God and they say, we're choosing to do our own thing. We're not leaning on you. We don't need you. We're going to go our own way. And what, what, is, what does Adam say? Adam says, Curse, I'm sorry, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat what? Bread till you return to the ground. So instead of Adam and Eve receiving the bread of blessing, they're making for themselves a sandwich, and it's a painful panini sandwich. They can receive the bread of blessing from the hand of God or they can make their own sandwich. I don't know about you guys, I hate to make a sandwich. I mean, like in a bad way, I hate making sandwich. I don't know why, it's just something God has just put in me. I love to sleep and I hate to make a sandwich, all right? 
But when we do our own thing, when we say, God, we stiff arm God, we're saying, God, I'll make my own sandwich. And he goes, fine. Bread of blessing, painful panini, your choice. What do you want? One commentator said it like this. Working harder won't bring you what you're after. Laboring longer, getting into the office and flipping the light on, unlocking the door, leaving that night, locking the door back and turning the light off could only become for you a fresh enslavement. Anybody want new chains to put on their wrists? I don't. I don't. I don't need that. I got enough things that are threatening to enslave me. I need Jesus to set me free. I need him to come along with a key and unlock it and say, let's go out of here. But when we work longer and harder, it can become a fresh enslavement. That's what verse 2 says. You can get up early. You can go to bed late. You can eat the bread of anxious toil. You can stress and worry and frantically try to put all the little pieces in place. But what does God do? He gives, here it is, sleep. He gives sleep to those he loves. Mark chapter 4, New Testament. Big storm, Sea of Galilee. Disciples are panicked. They're trying, I picture them this way, they're trying to bail water out of the boat. Where's Jesus? He's sleeping. He's in the bottom of the boat on a cushion, and he's crashed. And they go, Jesus, help us. Wake up. Save us. So he wakes up, right? He, you know, I mean, he's human. We forget that he rubs the sleep out of his eye, stretches a little bit, kind of notices things are a little bit crazy. He goes up on deck, and he thinks, whoa, man, where did this come from? And then what does he say to the storm? Shh, shh, be quiet. What does he say? Be Still, did he say work harder, storm? Is that all you got? No, he says, shh, be quiet. So in contrast to frantic labor, what does God give to his beloved? Sleep. Because there is no better contrast to painful toil than what? Peaceful sleep. When we do it our own way, we choose painful toil. We do it God's way, we choose peaceful rest, peaceful sleep. Let me give you some facts about sleep. This is fun. Listen to this. The record for the longest period without sleep is 18 days, 21 hours, and 40 minutes during the rock and chair marathon. The record holder reported hallucinations, paranoia, blurred vision, slurred speech, memory, and concentration lapses. Whoa. That's crazy. Like, I don't know what would possess somebody to drink that much monster energy drinks, that much caffeine, and just rock for... I'm eight, 19 days. I mean, outside your mind. Listen to this one. We're getting ready to add to our family here. And it's supposed to be nine days, probably going to be three weeks or something. But a new baby, a new baby typically causes 400 to 750 hours of sleep loss for parents in year one. Wow. So if I'm passed by you in the next few weeks and I don't even notice you and I'm like got red, you know, I'm red out and everything, you'll know what's going on. I'm up at 3 a.m., right? And I'm probably not praying. I'm probably just like helping. Okay? Here's a good one. Ducks. I don't know why I put this in. It's just for fun. Ducks at risk of attack by predators are able to balance their need for sleep and survival, keeping one half of the brain awake while the other half goes into sleep mode. All right? So like I guess one eye's open and one eye's shut. Something like this. All right, and under the water, they're just like, you know, churning so they don't sink or whatever. So when we sleep, we're completely dependent on someone else. And who is that by design? God. 
We're completely dependent on God. So here's the reality. Unless we depend on God in our waking efforts, unless we depend on God in our waking efforts like we depend on him in our sleep, we're not where we need to be in depending on the Lord. Is that a finish line? No. Are you ever going to get there before you get to heaven? No. But when you walk with Jesus and you watch how Jesus depended on his Father, what begins to happen? It just shows up in you, doesn't it? You just start leaning into him a little bit more. Right? So what does building this building debt-free do? What does that say to God? We're okay. We'll wait. We're at peace. We're still. When you bring the money in, God, then we'll start building. But we're not going to run ahead of you, God, because we want your sign in the yard. We don't want our sign in the yard. What does frantically overworking do? Personal application here. It says to God, I don't trust you. I trust me. And I'm going to make this thing happen because I'm not totally sure that you're going to come through for me here, God. So I'm going to frantically overwork. I'm going to shake my fist in your face. Verse 3, shifting gears. Same umbrella of depending on the Lord and the fundamentals, but now we're not talking about home. We're not talking about work. We're talking about family, all right, and specifically kids. So family was huge for people living in Jerusalem after the exile. Here's what happens in the exile. 600 years before Jesus' birth, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon storm in, they kick in the front door, they grab the Jewish people, they say, come on, you're going with me. And they march them, I think, 800 miles to the kingdom of Babylon. They teach them a new language, they give them new names, they give them new food, they basically try to recreate their identity to say, you're not who you used to be, now you're somebody else. All right? And they basically try to brainwash uh, the people. After they are out of exile and they're back home living in Jerusalem, what's the one thing they've got to do? They've got to re populate. All right? They've got to repopulate. One Jewish rabbi says this, each child brings a blessing all his own. This is the way Jews view children and family. You will see why in a second. We rejoice in children because we are a people, a historical people. This goes all the way back to Genesis 17. All the way back to 17 in the very beginning of the Bible. And what does God do? He picks a guy in chapter 12 named Abram. And you guys know it like in the fish camp out here in Old Fort, that little claw thing. You can operate the joystick and like the claw moves all around like this. And then it goes and picks up one or hopefully a toy and brings it back and drops it. I, I picture God doing this with Abram, all right? He goes over to Abram. He gets right down and picks him up. He brings him out and he drops him in some other place, okay? He takes Abram all the way away from his home. He takes him away from his family. He takes him away from everything. Why? Here's why. Because Abram came from the line of Noah, and Noah knew about God. And Noah walked with God and he worshiped God. But guess what? All that spiritual development was beginning to wind down. And the one family on earth who knew anything about worshiping God was going over to lunar worship. They're worshiping the gods of all the pagan people around them. And so if God doesn't step in and do something, what's going to happen to his chosen people from five chapters before? Done. So God gets involved. Right, And he reaches down and he plucks Abram up and he takes him out of the situation and he plants him over here. And he says to him, listen to the scripture, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Nations, interestingly, doesn't mean Jewish people. It doesn't mean just a bunch of Jews are going to come from your family. It means this, that it's going to eventually spread out to all these pagan people living around you who don't know me and they're going to know me. Your family is going to be the father of these people. No longer shall your name be called Abram, Daddy. All right? Your name shall be called Abraham, Big Daddy. 
For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And what? Kings shall come from you. This is the history of Israel. God steps in when a family was about to be done, spiritually and physically. Abram's like, like almost 100. His wife was, I don't know, 75, 80, something like that. She was old too. Like this, this wasn't happening unless God gets involved. And God gets involved, and when he does, what happens? Kings come from this line of people. This is Solomon's people right here. So if this promise for kings to come from this line rests on the value of kids and childbearing, then kids carry an immeasurable sense of worth to God. Like, have you ever thought about that? God's going to carry out his plan through kids. Not through us, through them. Through the ones banging on that wall right there. That's how God carries out his plan. That's crazy. If you were God, would you have ever drawn it up that way? I mean, Courtney, you're a coach. Would you ever draw a play? A play? I don't know if y'all do plays in soccer. I played soccer one year. No. No, we're not going to do that. Because that's crazy, but he's God. So excuse the expression here, but all this about heritage and fruit and reward, the whole thing's pregnant with meaning, okay? I mean, this thing's ready to pop. Think about fruit, heritage, reward. Thanks, Mike. Fruit, heritage, reward. All three of those things, what? Are given, right? No, a tree doesn't like strain and then all of a sudden an apple pops out. Like, it's just there. It just grows. It just happens. All right? You think about a heritage. What's a heritage? Something that's passed down from person to person to person through a family. Right? It's given. Think about a reward. If you do something great, somebody gives you a reward. It's given. What's God saying? He's not talking about, you know, well, what's God saying? He's saying this. I'm giving you all these things. All of it comes from my hand. Just lean into me. Verse 4 and 5, Solomon calls kids arrows. I love this. I'm a bow hunter as of last year. All right? He says, he says that these kids are arrows and they're going to have their dad's back when he, st- when he stands in the city gate. Arrows do two things. What do arrows do? Uh, arrows protect against enemies. Arrows provide food for the family. What's the city gate? Two things happen here. This is where important legal business transactions take place. This is where enemies try to come into the gate. Okay. So if you had loads of sons, literally that's what it means. It doesn't mean kids like boys and girls. It means sons. Okay, if you had loads of sons and they got your back when somebody comes at you in the city gate and they're like, hey man, that's a raw deal you did. They're not going to come at you hard when you got 18 kids standing behind you like, what's up? What's up? You want some? Like, they're not coming at you like that. My, my three-year-old Scott, he, it, like, once a day I get a text or a call and uh, it's about something that he's done. Oh. <laughs> He, he's, he's something. Uh, God, God did some work on that one. Um, they went, they, at home, we have this little set of figurines. They're pirates and they're redcoats, and they're about this big, and they're all over my house, and I step on them in the middle of the night, and I hate them, all right? But they got pirates, and they got redcoats. And, and the pirates, when you're a little boy, you're three and five pirates are the good guys, right? They're the good guys. So who ends up being the redcoat? Me. 
Right, I'm the red coat. And every now and then, because Scott wants to do everything I do, he'll actually jump sides and he'll come to what he calls the wed coat. All right, and he'll sit beside me. He's the wed coat. Well, like we're launching these little plastic arrows across the floor and we're having fun and everything, you know. Well, I, I get a call one day and I find out that Carrie and the boys have been up at Montreat Park. And Scott goes to this five-year-old boy, and they say, hey, you want to play Pirates and Red Coats? This boy has no idea what he's getting into, right? And he's like, yeah, sure. So they're playing or whatever, and Scott goes up and puts his bony little three-year-old finger in this five-year-old kid's chest. This is like me going to Charlie Gowan, all right? And he puts his finger in his chest, and he pushes him back, and he goes, I know you a wet coat. <laughs> That's my arrow. That kid's got my back, man. I love it. I mean, he is fearless. Let me be sensitive here for just a minute. I know that Psalm 127 can stir up some tough emotions, some difficult things in people, because it deals with a subject that's sensitive. So let me say a couple things to this. First of all, not everyone's called to be married. Not everyone's called to be married. If you're in this place this morning, you're single, and God's called you to a life of singleness, you can serve God better and you can do more than a married person can do. And so that's God's gift to you. Where did it come from? came from God. Dependence. If you're married and you're like, we can't have kids. I mean, God, God may not have called you to have kids because that's not his plan for how you're going to serve him, how you're going to lay it out there for him. But all of us can do this. We can all value kids. We can pray for kids. We can set a good godly example for them in this place. We can protect, provide, and encourage them the very best that we can. And that's what we want to do here at Grace Community Church. And that's what this building is about, is as adults, we're charting the course for where all those 70 or however many are right there, and 60 are over there, we're charting the course for where they are going. Matthew 18, Jesus is sitting with his disciples Right? And they're kind of throwing elbows to get to the front of the line. Who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to be first. I'm, you're going to be in the bronze medal spot. You know? And Jesus grabs a little snaggletooth second grader. He brings him over and he sets him right here. Dirt smudges all over his face. Teeth missing. Look, kids looking at his friend like, what's going on? They're like, I don't know. All right? And Jesus says, this right here is your model for how you become great in my kingdom. You guys are missing it. This is it. Do you think God places high value on children? Here's how highly God values kids. He, he values kids so highly that he sent his own son, who at one point, what the scripture says, was face to face with him in eternity. And he said, you're going down there, and you're going like this. You're going to be a little seven pound, six pound, nine pound, whatever, baby. Right? And somebody's going to change your diaper, son. Somebody's going to feed you. You're going to skin your knees one day, and you're going to, God skinned his knees in Jesus. He was a kid. And Mary, this before he was born, unwed teenage mother comes along, and she wipes his knees off, and she kisses his little boo-boo, and she says, it's okay, Jesus, it's all right. God condescended to come to us, and how did he do it? He didn't come as a big general. He didn't come as a king. He came as a baby. What kind of sense does that make at all? Because one day this baby's going to grow up, and where's he going? He's going to the cross. And his arms are going to be stretched out, and his mom's going to sit down there, and she's going to watch her baby as he's called names and spit at and laughed 
And he's going to die for the sins of people who are treating him this way so that everything in the whole of Scripture could be fulfilled in this one man's life who was born as a baby and grew up as a child. It doesn't make sense from our angle. But see, we're the common laborers. God's got the plans. So let me give you a quote. I snatched this from J.D. Greer, one of my favorite preachers. He says this, If dependence is the objective, then weakness is our advantage. Write that down. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is our advantage. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your what? Weakness. Paul says, so I'm going to brag, I'm going to boast about all of my weaknesses. I'm not going to hide them. I'm not going to try to keep you from them. I'm going to show you. Here, look, you see? Here it is, my weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest on me for the sake of Christ, then I'm content. I'm okay. I'm good with weakness. I'm good with insult. I'm good with hardship. I'm good with persecution. I'm good with calamity. Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if Genesis 3 is man shaking his fist in God's face and saying, we don't need you, Psalm 127 is a declaration of dependence. It's the Lord, we need you, before passion ever wrote it. It's the original, Lord, we need you. It touches on home, touches on work, touches on family, and says unless we do this thing God's way, every bit of it is empty. It's worthless. It's wasted. So I'm going to leave you with just a couple questions, and I'm going to close with a prayer. Question one, which one of these three fundamentals, home, work, or family, do you find yourself anxiously toiling after right now in your life? Wherever you're at in your life, if you're, if you're 12, if you're 19, if you're 30, if you're 60, where are you toiling? Because these three, none of us, we all have, I think, a home. We all have families. We all work. We all have that stuff. Where are we anxiously toiling? Number two, if we believe that God freely, watch this, if we believe that God freely gives us salvation in Jesus and that's our greatest need, then why don't we trust him for lesser things like our home and our work and our family? It's Romans 8.32. If he'll give us Jesus, why will he not graciously give us all these other things? So if we trust Jesus for the biggest thing, why are we not trusting him for the lesser? Do we believe that dependence is God's objective for our lives? Do you believe that? Because if you do, it's going to totally rewire all of your thinking. And no more you're trying to do this thing on your own. You realize every moment I wake up, like Adrian Rogers, the preacher, said, he'd wake up and turn his hands up like this. Before he got out of bed, he'd open his palms up and say, I need you today, Lord. Last question. Do we, along with the Apostle Paul, see weakness as our advantage? Do you see Do you see dependence as God's objective? Do you see weakness as your advantage? It doesn't make sense. But that's what the general contractor has said in his word in Psalm 127. So close your eyes. I want to read this prayer. It's from the Valley of Vision. And then I'm going to pray to close us and we'll respond and you can go pick up your kids. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, 
Where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, Thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Heavenly Father, let us lean into you every minute of every day. Whether we're building, whether we're working and keeping watch, whether we're raising a family, whether we're investing in young lives at this place, let us learn to depend on you and you alone the way we do, Father, when we are sleeping. We shut our eyes and we have no idea what's going on around us and you watch over us because you neither slumber or you neither sleep. Lord, as we build, bless this building. Bring in the money in your time. Give us young hearts, young minds, young lives for us to mold. And as the scripture says, Lord, give the increase as you see fit. We pray these things in the good name of Jesus who loved us, died for us, was raised from the grave, and has made a way for us to come to you, our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead.